The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. As you read the Bible, you will no doubt uncover many times where you'll stumble across various promises that God makes to His children. There are times where these promises are there for you in Scripture, and they're meant as an encouragement to you. And I would challenge you, as you read through the Bible in the morning time, or in your devotion time, or whenever that is that you're able to read, and you stumble across one of those promises that God is making to His children, you just underline those, commit those to memory, keep those in a separate document maybe, that you consult time and again, that you just rehearse in your mind over and over Some of them sound like this from Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Or what about Deuteronomy 31.8? It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Or what about Psalm 37, 23 and 24? The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. What about Philippians 4, 19? And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches, according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. What about Proverbs 3, 5 to 6? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. 2 Timothy 1, 7, For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. James 1, 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Romans, 9, uh, Romans 8, 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And on and on and on the Bible goes reiterating promises that God makes uniquely to those who are his children. They're meant to be a comfort, but far from diverting you around the storm, they are comfort through the storm. Do you notice that? He doesn't say when you, when you stumble, He will not only help you pick you up, but uh, let you avoid the stumbling. Take you around the storm to the other side. No, no, no. The very premise of the promises that are listed there for us in Scripture is that we are going through the hard time. And He is there to endure with us through the hard time. That's the purpose of the promises. They come to us in the midst of of suffering. They are there for us in the midst of suffering. But then comes the question, how do we actually respond to them? 
How do I take these promises that are in Scripture and actually apply them to me? As I uncover them throughout Scripture, as they're sprinkled here and there, how do I take these promises and actually make them a part of everyday life? Now, last week in 2 Samuel 7, 1-17, we saw God giving to David a really spectacular set of promises. We call this the Davidic covenant, but it is essentially God making a series of promises, eight by my count, to David. And he's essentially promising David that David will always have a male heir on the throne, which is spectacular because the person before him, Saul, who was king, God removed him from the throne. And all of Saul's heirs gradually died. So essentially he had no heir on the throne anyway. And he had taken his throne from Saul and given it to David. But now to David, the promise that he makes to him is spectacular. And that I will always preserve a male heir on the throne. He gives him eight promises, which I enumerated last week. And I was told several times I missed one. Number six, apparently. So I'm going to give them to you again. How about that? You want them again? I know some of you didn't email me, but you told me in one way or another. Uh, he makes, he promises to make David a great name. That's one, a great name. Two, he promises to appoint a place for his people. Three, he promises to give them rest from their enemies. Four, he promises to give David offspring after him. Five, he promises to establish the kingdom of that offspring. Six, he promises to establish his throne forever. That's the one I missed. Seven, he promises to be a father to David's offspring. Eight, he promises to discipline him when he commits iniquity. So you understand what's happening in these promises that God is making to David. He, he's taking the Abrahamic covenant, the, co the promise that he made to Abraham, and he's now specifying exactly what line that is going to be applied to, to the uttermost. So he's made a promise to Abraham that he's going to select a people and he's going to redeem a people. And he's left it in vague generalities that all of Israel is, is, falls under this covenant. But now when he gets to David, he is specifying directly through whom and through what line that particular Messiah is going to come who is going to redeem God's people. And we find out in the Davidic covenant that it is, it is David through whom the Messiah is going to come. So, in our passage this morning, David is now going to respond to God about the, concerning the promises that God has just made to him. David is going to respond to all of God's promises, but I think David's response to God is more than merely something that happened one time in human history. I think David's response to God is not merely for us to see what happened one time. I think his response is here for our instruction. That it is for us to understand and, and even emulate. For us to wrap our minds around and then understand what to do with the promises that God has made to His people. And I think that because of the end of verse 19. If you look there, it says, This is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. 
Now, some of you may have a different translation there. Perhaps if you use the NIV, you might have something like, And this decree, Sovereign Lord, is for a mere human, which is drastically different, it seems, than what is there in the ESV. Or in other translations, it says something like, Is this, like a question, is this your usual way of dealing with men, O Lord God? Now, all of these translations, believe it or not, are possible. But I, I think the ESV has it right here. And the main reason that I think the ESV is right is because of the, there's a parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 17. And it says this, 1 Chronicles 17, 17. And this was a small thing in your eyes, O God. You have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come and have shown me future generations, O Lord God. So the reason that I think this affirms the way we read it in the ESV is because of this. David is getting a glimpse by God of all the future generations to come. He is understanding that what God is promising him is his sovereign plan for all generations. God is making uh, real to David that the Messiah of the world, the Savior of mankind, is going to come through his line. So then, what David is also realizing is that everyone who would fall under the reign of the Messiah is responsible for this promise. Everyone, this is instruction for everyone who would be impacted by the Savior to come from David's line. That is to say, everyone. So whether you, right now, consider yourself a servant of Jesus Christ, or whether you consider yourself not a follower of Jesus Christ, every single one of you have to pay attention to what has been said here to David. David is realizing, Lord, you have given me a peek into the future. I see your plan for generations to come. Namely, to bring about an heir whose kingdom will last forever. A Messiah whom everybody will be subject to. Whom everybody will have to give an account for. Whom everybody will have to determine on what kingdom, of what kingdom they serve. You have, have given me a picture of what your Messiah will be like and whose line he comes from. Of course, we know that Jesus is ultimately the one that God is thinking of when he makes this covenant with David. We saw that last week. So David understands that this covenant with him is instructive for all who would be saved by Jesus. Now hopefully you're beginning to see the connection here. We saw last week, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. This promise that God makes to David is instructive, David says, for all of mankind because everyone is impacted by the ministry of the Messiah. Whether you sit there right now thinking you don't or not, doesn't matter. Everyone is impacted by the ministry of the Messiah. Every single person in this room is going to close their eyes in death one day and open their eyes standing before the throne of God, having to give an account of what they believe about Jesus. 
So we are still living under the promises of the Messiah. All of these promises that I read at the beginning and many more that are spread throughout Scripture, all of those promises find their yes in Christ. That means that when Jesus died and bought for Himself a people, redeemed a people, He secured those promises for you. If you consider yourself to be a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Christ, Jesus has secured those promises for you. So when God says, fear not, I am with you, be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He can do that because of the purchase that Christ made on the cross where he shed his blood for you and purchased you as a member of his family. You understand? So all of those promises find their yes in Christ. He secured those promises for you. So then David responds to God in these promises. And his response is also informative for us for how we should respond to the promises as we encounter them in Scripture. So just if you're keeping score at home, we're already to Jesus. All right, normally it takes us a little while to apply it. We're already there. All right, this is part two of the sermon from last week. So the first way we respond to these promises is to humble ourselves before God. The first way we respond to these promises that we find in Scripture is to be humbled by them, to humble ourselves before God. Look at verse 18 and how David responds to the promise God has just made to him. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? The promises of God have taken a perverted turn in our culture. Many times when the promises of God are preached in pulpits. What inevitably follows after that is the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. And the premise of that is this, that all of God's promises, they say, are primarily about this life. That they guarantee, second, they guarantee health, wealth, and prosperity for you now. And third, the quality of your faith secures these promises. So the prosperity gospel basically says when God makes a promise to you, He wants your life right now to be really good for you to not have suffering. And He, want, he is guaranteeing. Those, of his, those who are His children, He's guaranteeing them health, wealth, and prosperity in the here and now. And the way that you secure those promises. Remember, I said earlier, those promises find their yes in Christ. Christ secured them for you. But the prosperity gospel says, no, the, the quality of your faith secures these. So in other words, if your faith is good enough, if it is of a high enough quality then you will have health, wealth, and prosperity now. You understand that this is just another way of preaching salvation by works. 
Your temporal, your earthly prosperity is just a litmus test of how good your faith is. So you look at some person or some church that is whose personal finances are bursting at the seams. You say, well, they must be doing something right. Well, man, God must love them. They seem to not be able to fail. Well, David will disabuse you of that thinking if you listen to his prayer. He is not praying that it is because of the power of his faith that he has secured this blessing from God in any way. In fact, he says in verse 18, Who am I? What have I done? Does he say, Good thing I had so much faith? Well, God, you should be blessing me because I'm a pretty swell dude. He doesn't say that at all. In fact, he says, you have brought me thus far. See, this is the absurdity of the gospel, of the true gospel. God not only brings him to this place, then exalts him as king, and then blesses him. Why? Because he wanted to. David is saying to God, why me? I I haven't done anything. Here I am, a man of rags. I was tending sheep out in the pasture, and you brought me here. And now you would reward me? This is the absurdity of the gospel, is that you're gaining what you did not deserve. It's not a quality of faith that you had that God then sees and goes, yep, well, he's good enough. I'll give him salvation. It's God bringing his people to a place. So it leads Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 to say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The rich? No, the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The proud? No, the meek, they shall inherit the earth. God himself says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Far from the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, we should be preaching the weakness, meekness, and poverty gospel. Particularly poverty of spirit. God's promises should drive us to humility. It should lead us to asking the question, why me? Why? And this passage is going to answer that question, by the way. We're going to get to it in a second. Look at verse 19. He says, And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this instruction for mankind is for mankind. This is instruction for mankind, O Lord. Quite the opposite of this promise, puffing up his own ego, David realizes the sheer power of an almighty God who is able to deliver on these promises. You see what he says there? He says, this is a small thing. You remember what God is promising to David? You will always have a male heir on the throne. In a day where infant mortality is above 50%, God is promising to his king he will always have a male heir on the throne. It's a spectacular change, obviously, as we've already said, from what happened to Saul previously, who all his sons are dead. 
And now he's telling David, I will guarantee this. Imagine the power of someone to be able to come in and promise such a thing. And David says, this is a small thing in your eyes. It's nothing for you to promise this kind of thing. In fact, this is where the humility lies, is in the disparity between us and God. First of all, David's recognizing, who am I? And then he's looking at God and saying, look at how great you are for something so great as a promise like this to be a small thing for you. You can do this with the flick of your wrist. But now look in verse 20. He says, And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise, and according to your own heart, you have brought about this greatness to make your servant know it. He says there, he uses the phrase, according to your heart, which means like your heart, your inclination, according to your disposition, according to your own desires, essentially. The reason for David being a recipient of God's graces to him is because of what? He says, because it was in your heart to do so. What's the reason for God looking at David and deciding to bless him in this way? David answers that question, because it was in your heart to do so. He doesn't credit his own faith or his own greatness or his own humility even or his own fortitude or his own moral uprightness. He credits God's desires to bring it about. He's affirming what God has already said back in verse 8. If you look back there with me, he says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. He's agreeing, God, you brought me here. And it's simply because you wanted to do this that you did it. I think the best place for a Christian to be is right here where David is in this verse. I, I think this is the point of humility, to get to exactly this place when you realize that your inclusion in the family of God was not of your own doing. That you being here as a member of the body of Christ, that you being a part of God's family, was simply because God wanted to make you a part of His family. When that reality sets into your mind, and when it sets into your heart, that I did nothing for this, He just included me because He wanted to. When that reality sets in, and when the ramifications really begin to bounce around your mind, it creates in your, in your mind and in your heart this question, but why me? Have you ever had that feeling before where you've, where you've sat there? Maybe, you, maybe you've experienced the forgiveness of sin on the other side. You've had a terrific downfall and then you've turned to Christ and you've found in Him a, a God who is more than willing to forgive. Or maybe it's been a host of other tragedies in your life, but one trial after another, you have found the promises of God to be true to you time and again. 
And have you ever gotten to that point on the other side of some great trial and you've thought to yourself, God, I have no idea why you've done this. I have no idea why you've included me. Why? And maybe you've asked that question of God, why? Why me? The answer that scripture gives to that question is because God decided to. Do you look at yourself and go, is it because I was raised in the right family? Maybe it was, maybe it was because I was smarter than my friends. Maybe it was because I'm more humble than anybody else. No, this, the way the scriptures answer that is because God wanted to. The reason that I think this is the right place for you to be in is because it places your inclusion in the family of God strictly within God's power and ability to do it. And that puts you and me in a position of more humility. Because we realize there's nothing that I did to be included in the family. It was, it was God's doing. I suspect there are more than a few in this very room who have not gotten to the point where they are overwhelmed by the grace and mercy of God just yet. And maybe that's because you're running away from Christ. Maybe it's because you want nothing to do with Christ. Or maybe you really want to follow Jesus, but perhaps you just don't have a firm grasp on how it all works together yet. But I pray that one day, by God's grace, you get to this point where you begin to wrestle with your own adoption into God's family, where you, it, you, you really begin to wake up and you start to ask the question, God, why me? Why have you adopted me? And, and I don't mean in the way that the Sunday school answer is kind of there for you, and, and we always talk about it in Sunday school, yeah, by His grace and His mercy we're saved, and, and you just kind of say the same things over and over. I mean, so much so that it drives you to tears. Why me? Why have you forgiven me? Why have you included me in your family? Because it's life-changing when you realize that God set His affections on you because He wanted to. You didn't do anything to deserve it. Simply because He wanted to. There is no other reason. And what then will boggle your mind later on is when you realize you're included in God's family strictly by His grace and mercy, not because of anything that you did, then you'll realize nothing you can ever do will change that. If He set His affections on you, He will not remove it. Why? Because He's faithful to His promises. So what then does it produce in David? And this is the real goal of humility right here. This is why this is the best place for you to be in that kind of humble position because of what it produces. Look at verse 22. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. The reason that it's life-changing when you get to that question, why me? And then you realize God included me simply because He wanted to is because it changes your worship. 
You can't come into fellowship with the body of Christ anymore and sing praises to his name, realizing that I'm included simply by his grace and mercy and sing the same way you did before. It changes the way you think about songs. It changes the way you think about the text of the Bible, what it's doing for you. We just sang this song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And I want you, I'm going to go back through the words again. And I want you to hear these words. And I want you to think, why me? Because I think the songwriter is wrestling with that same question. And he's bringing the conclusion to you in this song. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. That he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away. As wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Why should I gain from his reward? The answer is because God said so. But this is why I want you to understand how this applies to you. is because David doesn't just apply this to him. He applies this to all the people who are redeemed people of God. Look at verse 23 and 24. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out, driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O oh Lord, became their God. Now he applies this to the nation of Israel because that is his context. But what Paul is going to do for us in the New Testament is update our understanding to say in the book of Romans that the Gentiles who believe in Christ are grafted in to the redeemed people of God. So speaking of the Gentiles, he says this in Romans. Romans eleven seventeen, you Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. You stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. He's reiterating the same thing. You are included in the redeemed people of God strictly by his grace. Don't make that a proud thing. It should lead to humility, to faith, to the fear of God. So if you are among the people of God, 
then he has chosen you out of his own kindness. And what that should produce in you is the utmost of humility. I have done nothing, but here I am. So we should humble ourselves before God because you understand that you're not better than anyone else. God has opened your eyes to his saving grace. He has confirmed his Savior, David's heir, as King and Sovereign Lord to you. So then what do you do as a response to God's promises? When you, when you read those in the text of Scripture, when you say, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What should it do but lead your mind to what God has done for you in Christ? And be utterly humbled before him. And then, Christian, pray for his will to be done. Here are the promises. Here are promises aplenty in Scripture. You have them all over. What do you do after you humble yourself before God? You pray and pray and pray for his will to be done. His will includes these promises Pray that they would be done. This is exactly what David does. Look at verse 25. And now, O Lord, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. When David says confirm forever, what he means is, Lord, keep. Keep your promise. David is praying that God's will would be done. Here's the promises that you have made. Now I pray that you would do your will. Now, we just said that God keeps his promises. We, we know that that's true. Why would, God, why would David then have to turn to God and say, keep your promises? I, I would submit that Christians on the whole have little understanding for prayer. That, that includes me too, maybe. That we often find ourselves going, why do we pray? I mean, here is a sovereign God who knows all. Jesus even tells us to ask for the things that we need, but then he says, but God knows what you need. We're told to pray, and then Paul says, we don't know what to pray for as we ought. The Spirit intercedes for us. The groaning's too deep for words. God knows what is the mind of the Spirit. So essentially, the Spirit is interceding for us, praying for what we should be praying for, God is acknowledging the prayer that the Spirit is praying, that we should be praying, and He does what the Spirit prays. So don't you have to ask every once in a while, like, why? Well, why do we pray then? If He already knows, then just say, do it. I'm good with it. Well, there's many things that we could say about prayer, and I won't get into all of them. But one thing that we do know for sure Prayer is about changing us. We often change the meaning of prayer or dilute the meaning of prayer in one of two ways. Perhaps one is we think, well, maybe I can change God's mind in this. God has set his mind on something and I'm going to pray and I'm going to change what God has set. That's absurd. Or maybe I think I might be able to inform him of something that he doesn't know. I need this, and God, unless I ask, you won't know that I need that. Well, even Scripture will tell you that's foolish. 
One, it changes us. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And I think one way Peter has of doing that or suggests of doing that is prayer. It's a relief to our anxiety. Why? Because we're in the midst of the valley. And we're looking at the promises of God and we're saying, Lord, confirm these promises to us. Uphold us with your righteous right hand. And this very act of praying to God in the midst of these difficulties, praying these promises that he has made to us, relieves the burden of anxiety from us. So Peter says, pray, ask. But second, and this is harder to wrap your mind around, are you ready for this? It's fuel for God's judgment on the earth. Prayer is fuel for God's judgment on the earth. And I don't just mean judgment in wrath. I mean His action, His righteous action on the earth. I want you to hold two passages in mind, both of which occur in Revelation. I want you to listen to this. Revelation 5, 8. They're going to appear on the screen behind me. And when He had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. First picture there in Revelation 5.8 is a bowl, and it's filled with incense, which John says are the prayers of the saints. Okay, I want you to notice what happens to this incense and this censer. Revelation 8, 3-5, this is just three chapters later. Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it onto the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. The prayers of the saints, actually one passage that I didn't read was in chapter 6, where the prayers of the martyrs, those slain for their testimony of Christ under the altar, are crying out, how long, O Lord, in prayer, how long, O Lord, before you avenge our blood on the earth. And chapter 8, we see the answer to that. He takes all the prayers of the saints that form the fuel of his judgment and throw it onto the earth. It's a terrifying picture of God's judgment coming to humanity and it is fueled by the prayers of the saints. See, your prayer is not informing him of something that he didn't already know. How do you know that? He wrote a book 2,000 years ago that tells you how humanity is going to end. Are you going to inform him of something that he didn't know? Really? It's preposterous. Your prayer's not changing his mind. Are you going to present to him some sort of conclusion that he hadn't considered before? That he thinks might actually be a better option? You know, now that you say that, I hadn't thought about it that way. I'm a pretty bright guy. It's preposterous. Your prayer provides the evidence that his judgment is just. Your prayer provides the fuel for his fire. 
David is here praying, go, God, go. You've made this promise, now do it. Confirm to me that your promises are true. Then look at what he says in verse 26. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. The promises that God makes to his people are for our good and for his glory. In other words, what David is saying here is he actually takes great pleasure in being your God and being your Savior and being the King of his people. And he wants the salvation that you have in Christ to be for your joy. What does he say? What's the result of all this? Your name will be magnified forever. What will it produce in the hearts of his people that he saves you? That he's true to his promises. What will be produced in your heart when you come through that season of trial? As you stand here in this room and you sing praises, what will be the result of those praises? But that they will be genuine. Yes. Have you ever been on the other side of trial? The cancer diagnosis was then overturned. God spared your life and you come in here and you sing that first hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Or maybe there has been a cancer diagnosis, and you come in here and you see It Is Well up on the screen, and you sing, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, It is well, it is well with my soul. That song takes on a whole new meaning on the other side of trial, does it not? What does the suffering of his people produce when God is faithful to his promises? When we pray, yes, God, confirm those promises, and we see that he is faithful time and again, it produces joy. It makes God's name great. Why? Because his people are rejoicing over the salvation that God has accomplished for them in Christ. This is the basis on which we pray that God's response will be to make His name great. It's not about my name. David even acknowledges it's not about David's name. It's about God's name. His name will be great when He saves His people, when He's true to His promise. But then look at what he, how He ends it in 27 to 29. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. How, how do you respond? What's the end of this? How does David finally, what does he get to at the very end of God's promise to him? It's trust. At the end of all this, it is trust. I trust that your words are true. If they weren't, I wouldn't be able to come to you right now. If they weren't, you wouldn't allow me in your presence. I couldn't ask. If I couldn't believe 
that he actually loved me, how could I possibly approach his throne? And David said, the very fact that I'm here in your presence is an acknowledgement of the fact that you are, your words are true and I trust that they will be true forever. So when you come to these places in Scripture where there are God's promises sitting in front of you, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And you look down at that doctor's report, or you look at your lost job, or you look at your kids run off, or you look at whatever you have in front of you. And you see all these many trials before you. What are you left with? Trust. But how do I know that he's true to his word? Because all of the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Because, Christian, 2,000 years ago, there was a man that came, the Son of God, truly God, truly man, he died on a cross, living a perfect life, died on a cross, and suffered for my sin. My sin was laid upon his shoulders, and I received his righteous rewards. And now I have eternal life strictly because of God's goodness to me, not because of anything that I did or anything that I deserved. That's how I know he's true to his promises, because all the promises he made have found their yes in Christ. He has fulfilled them in Christ. And he promises yet again to return, to raise his people from the dead, to give them everlasting life. And it is in that that I place my trust, knowing that he has been faithful up to this point, and I have no reason to doubt him now. What I am looking for is not riches in this life as the cheap prosperity gospel would proclaim. It's not promising too much. It's promising far too little. What awaits for us is an eternal reward that is based on the works of Christ, not on my faith or my humility or my goodness or my uprightness or anything that I have done, but solely on the merits of Christ alone. And because of that, we can have eternal life. But what it also says is that when he promises there is judgment still to come, where the censer filled with the prayers of the saints is being thrown down to the earth in judgment, that there is judgment still to come. So listen, as I said at the beginning, David said in his, in his own words, this is instruction for everybody. If you find yourself as a follower of Christ, or if you find yourself outside of the family of God. Either way, this applies to you. Christian, be encouraged. God is faithful to his promises and will confirm them again to you when Christ returns. But if you find yourself outside of the family of God, having rejected Christ, having run far away from Christ, do you understand the judgment that is sure? The God who is true to his promises to his people is true to all his promises. And when he promises that you will close your eyes in death and open them in front of his throne, he means it. And what he offers to you is forgiveness of sin. And you think to yourself, well, it can't be that easy. Surely. It can't be as easy as confessing my sin and, and just believing in Christ and just trusting. It's, that's it? Yes. Now, there's a whole life of obedience on the other side of salvation that Christ empowers when you have truly had your eyes open to your own death 
and your own judgment. But Christian, trust in the promises of God. Unbelieving, repent of your sin and trust in Christ. But no matter who you are, the call is the same. Humble yourself before God. Trust in Him who is faithful to make good on His word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that Your word is true. What would we do? Where would we turn if we could not turn to Christ? Where would we be without the work of Christ on the cross? We would be on the road to hell. So Father, we look at the promises that you've made in your word. We acknowledge them as true and though there are times in our life, maybe some of those times are right now where we are blinded by frustration or guilt or we are blinded by trial of many kinds. I pray that you give us enough of your grace today, enough of your mercies today to trust that your promises are true. And I pray that it would fuel our worship. Father, confirm your promises to us. We pray with John, come Lord Jesus. We look at the world around us seeming to wander off to hell in a handbasket. And we desire nothing more than to see the precious face of our Savior return. So come quickly, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.